The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey everybody, I'm Victoria Moran and I am your host here on Unity FM Radio, Unity Online Radio for Main Street Vegan. So happy to have you all with us today. I know that almost everybody who's listening to this program is listening after the fact on your iPad or your iPad or your eyes something or other, which is all so exciting. Did you ever think that you would own one tiny device that was a library and a bookcase and a radio and a newsstand and a compass and a GPS? It really is remarkable. Of course, that's probably also why a lot of people don't have jobs today. We are in a transitional period. Things need to go from one paradigm to the other. And yet, it is rather miraculous, the things that we are enjoying today. But I know that there are some of you out there who are not iPodding and padding and phoning after the fact that you're actually listening on an antique computer right now, live on Wednesday, January 23rd. And if you are, I would invite you to call in and talk with me and talk with our wonderful guest, Professor James McWilliams, who will be joining us in a little bit here. And the number to do that is 888-558-6489. That's our toll-free number, 888-558-6489. Main Street Vegan is all about you. And so we would like to hear from you. I'll just fill you in a bit on what's been going on for me. This is my month for Texas. I told you last week that earlier in the month, I went to the Get Healthy Marshall Conference Festival in in Marshall, Texas, which is East Texas near the Louisiana border. Incredible, phenomenal. Google Get Healthy Marshall. You will learn about a small city that is going vegan. It's really, really extraordinary and wonderful to see these people get so healthy and so committed. Then last weekend, I was in Texas again. I've never been in Texas twice in a week ever in my entire life. But I was in Dallas speaking at the Unity Church there, and that was just wonderful and and delightful. Terrific people. Big um, Sunday services and then a, a workshop in the afternoon, two and a half hour workshop. Lots and lots of fun. And then today, our guest is going to be calling in from Texas. How did this happen? My lone star must be rising. So we will be hearing later from Professor James McWilliams, who is known for his book, Just 
food. Now, when he wrote that book, Just Food, Where Locavores Get It Wrong and How We Can Truly Eat Responsibly, he was transitioning into a plant-based lifestyle, and now he is a totally committed vegan, along with being a historian and environmentalist and a great many other things. So it's going to be very fun and interesting to talk with him later. I also want to share with you something that came in today via email from Michelle Simon. Michelle is uh, an environmental and consumer advocacy attorney out in the Northwest, and she has been doing a little snooping around to see exactly how trustworthy is the information that we get from some of the big nutrition organizations that are supposed to be telling us what to eat. Now, one of these used to be called the American Dietetic Association. They've changed their name now to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And in many ways, I have great respect for this organization. I know wonderful, wonderful registered dietitians. Lots of them are vegan and vegetarian. The association has done a a position paper on vegetarian diets, which is quite glittering. But I did learn that about 20 years ago, when I attended a convention of what was then called the American Dietetic Association, that they're kind of in the pocket of these big food companies. I was so shocked to walk into this giant convention hall and I saw the Coca-Cola booth and the Hershey's booth and and the uh, Nestle's booth. I couldn't believe it. It was as if these people who were trying to tell us how to be healthy were telling us that certainly at least in moderate amounts, although I know that some people can't even eat moderate amounts of some of that stuff, we're supposed to be eating all kinds of junk food and, and sugar and snack food. Well, you know what? Michelle Simon has now done some more work on this, and she is saying that registered dietitians can actually earn continuing education units from Coca-Cola in which they learn that sugar is not a problem for children and that Nestle, the world's largest food company, can pay $50,000 to host a two-hour nutrition symposium at the Academy's annual meeting. Now, back in 2001, which was well after I attended that convention, they listed 10 food industry sponsors. Their 2011 annual report lists 38 food industry sponsors, and those on the list of approved continuing education credits include Kraft Foods, Nestle, and PepsiCo. At the 2012 annual meeting, 18 organizations, less than 5% of all exhibitors, had 25% of the total exhibitor space, and only two out of the 18 represented whole, unprocessed foods. A little bit shocking, isn't it? So when people say to me, well, I, I need to find a nutritionist, I need to find somebody who'll give me some guidance, what I would say to them is just have a good old talk with that person and see how you jive with your philosophies. You know, if somebody told me that a little Coca-Cola now and then was okay, I'm not sure I'd trust them. And that's not to say that Coca-Cola has never passed these lips. But when somebody is trying to tell me the best thing to do, I don't want to hear what's the worst thing to do in a pinch. Of course, when I'm in a third world country and I can't drink the water, yeah, I'll drink the Coca-Cola if that's all there is there. That's not my daily life. That's not what I want to think about. Oh, well, a little bit is okay. Because you know what happens when we say a little bit is okay? It becomes a lot pretty darn fast. So the the article, Michelle Simon's article, is called, And Now a Word from Our Sponsors. New York Times covers new report from Eat Drink Politics, which is Michelle's organization. So give her a Google, Eat Drink Politics, Michelle with uh, one L, Simon, and just uh, have a read. And then let me know what you think about this. I think it's really, really important that we strive for the best. Another one of my mentors 
Dr. Alan Goldhammer of True North Health. He was actually one of our our guests a couple of months ago. He has said that the fastest growing job sector in America is health care. If we got healthy, there would be problems, economic problems. So maybe we can't necessarily count on our government to do the very best for us all the time in terms of being healthy. So think for yourself, reason things out, get all of the information that you can get and make your very own healthy, kind, compassionate, and absolutely delicious and delightful choices. We've been given free will and it's ours to use. So right now, it's time for our break, but if you'll stay with us through these messages, you will be rewarded at the end with a wonderful interview with Professor James McWilliams coming up right after this. Unity Online Radio is affiliated with Unity, a nonprofit organization specializing in prayer, publishing, and spiritual education. If you enjoy our programming and would like to support this ministry, go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now to make a contribution. You can make a one-time or recurring monthly donation. Thank you. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan here on Unity Online Radio. I'm so happy to be welcoming as our guest today, the author of a book that I absolutely inhaled. (laughs) I read this book, I think in a day and a half. It's called Just Food, Where Locavores Get It Wrong and How We Can Truly Eat Responsibly. And we'll be touching on that a little bit with Professor Mick Williams, but we're going to be talking more about things that are happening lately. You know, sometimes when you write a book and a few years pass and everybody wants to talk about what you said in the book, it's sort of like when everybody wants to ask you about your old girlfriend or your old boyfriend that you had five years ago and now you're madly in love with somebody else and you really don't want to talk about that other person, nothing wrong with them, just you've kind of moved on. So I I respect that. And Professor James McWilliams has so moved on. When he wrote Just Food, he was a committed environmentalist, which he still is. But in doing some of the research, he has become also a committed plant-based eater, and I believe we can say vegan. We'll ask him how he feels about that word. James E. McWilliams is an associate professor of history at Texas State University. He received the 2009 Hyatt Prize in the Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Slate.com, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, and he is the author of three previous books. He lives in the Veg Hub of Austin, Texas. Welcome, James. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Victoria. Oh, thanks so much for, for being with us today. So do you call yourself a vegan? How are you with the V word? I think it's the best word ever. Yes, oh, I am a vegan, you. capital V. <laughs> and why do you think that? And why do you think so many people skirt around it and use other phrases? Well, I think there's this, maybe there's this perception that it's extreme. And I think there's also maybe a sense that um, the word vegan has been invested with associations that aren't altogether positive. But my feeling is that it's a word that holds tremendous hope um, for not only the way we approach food, but really the way we approach life and our relationship to animals. I think it's a word with great potential, and the more, in my opinion, the, the, the more it's out there, the better. Um, and even in the last um, five years that, that I've been kind of actively engaged in uh, writing about uh, veganism, I've noticed that the word is appearing more often. Groups of people you might not um, expect to have heard or know much about veganism do, and the press overall, and I think it really matters, the kind of press that veganism gets, um, is becoming increasingly positive. And so I think that there's a real opportunity for you know, those of us who are really concerned about the, the, the future of food, but also the future of the way humans and animals interact to, uh, there's a real opportunity to kind of invest this word with the kind of meaning we want it to have. So I try to say it as often as I possibly can. Oh, I'm so glad you do. So tell us your story. How did you get from where you started to here? Well, you mentioned in the introduction that when I was writing Just Food, um, I was doing so as a committed environmentalist. Um, at the time, I was uh uh, you know, I was an active omnivore, um, but it became very clear to me that if I, as an environmentalist, wanted to really live up to um, to my beliefs, that I would have to um, essentially stop eating uh, animals, um, mostly meat. And so, I, doing the research for Just Food, the the this the kind of suspicion that I had that animal agriculture was degrading to the environment was was radically confirmed. I mean, I realized, especially after 2006 when um, Livestock's Long Shadow came out, I realized that um, animal agriculture is atrocious for the environment. It's a complete disaster, and I really didn't... I came to the conclusion there can be no such thing as a meat-eating environmentalist, and I thought, if I believe that, I need to act on that. And I did. And I became a vegetarian, and that lasted about six months. And um, Because what was happening uh, between becoming a vegetarian and becoming a vegan was, one, I was kind of subjecting myself to um, a, an immersion in animal rights literature. And I found it very convincing. Um, I found it uh, intellectually engaging, emotionally engaging. Um, and it really started to reorient how I thought about um, the human-animal relationship. And then um, while I was undergoing this kind of self-education, a friend, a vegan friend who was wondering why I was a vegetarian and not a vegan sent me a very powerful uh, YouTube clip of a, um, of, a, of a cow, of a dairy cow, um, having her calf taken away. Uh, of course, to be turned into veal, and the video focused on the reaction of the of the mother cow, and it was it was very powerful, and it it hit me emotionally. And before that clip even ended, I you know knew I'd never be eating animal products again, and that was um, I guess in two thousand and uh, and seven two thousand eight when all of this trans transpired, and since then I've just very much have dedicated my my scholarship and my writing towards um, highlighting various aspects of of this issue of of the animal issue of the vegan um, diet. 
Well, there's no question that anybody who follows you sees that you have totally jumped into this with both feet. If you do want to read more, uh, check out james-mcwilliams.com, and that's mcmcwilliams.com. You do beautiful blogging, and I really admire that because as a professional writer for my entire life, I almost said adult life, but I started writing for money when I was 14. I have the hardest time blogging (laughs) because it seems like I'm using stuff that should go in my next book, but you do it so beautifully and it looks like you do it just about every day. And I'd like to touch on some of your recent blog posts. Today is fabulous. Truth in satire, the onion peels back the humane myth. Now, anybody who doesn't know about The Onion, it's this wonderful satirical paper and, and online publication. And tell us about that and uh, what you make of it as a vegan. Well, I really, um, I really like the piece because um, I've, in my own blogging, and thank you for, for complimenting that because I do work very hard to blog every day. And um, I feel like it, it keeps me grounded in the issues and like anything that you want to you know, become better at the more often you do it, the easier and it gets and the better you do become. But, you know, the onion piece caught my eye because for well over a year now I've been um, blogging about how frustrated I am with the way the mainstream media treats the whole idea of um, humane meat or, um, you know, welfare-approved animal products. And the whole idea that you can... And raise an animal and then slaughter an animal and call that humane is, to me, a, an oxymoron that really seems to escape the attention of the mainstream media when they go out and cover the um, uh, small farms that are supposedly um, treating the animals oh so well until, of course, it's time to, to slaughter those animals. And as I've kind of harped on the mainstream media for for failing to even acknowledge this oxymoron, the whole idea of a humane slaughter, uh, here comes the onion, a mainstream, you know, I, mean, I think you can safely call the onion mainstream. It reaches, uh, certainly reaches a mainstream audience. And um, just wrote this piece, nailing it on the head, um, about uh, how it was, um, the piece was by a, uh, a farmer, you know, who was talking about how very much he loves his cows until uh, he takes a knife to the throat and hangs them upside down. And, of course, it's satire. But um, the onion just nailed it on the head. And it's really the first time I've seen a, a mainstream uh, media source really get this issue and highlight the oxymoronic nature of this issue. And, of course, making this kind of quite hilarious is that, of course, the only reason the mainstream news source got it right was because this mainstream news source happens to be satire. And as a result, finally highlighted what you know, writers in the in the New York Times, for example, um, really seem unwilling to acknowledge. So, you know, I just decided this, this, that piece came out yesterday, and I immediately saw it and said I need to write about this because I think it's, it's um, a really important article. And the other thing that interested me about it was I kind of, I mean, the great thing about blogging is it can be a litmus test for ideas. And, you know, you mentioned you don't like to blog sometimes because, um, oh, you want to use it in a book or something, and I get that very much. But at the same time, I can take ideas that I'm still working with and put them out there and I've you know I have enough of a readership and my readership is um, great. I mean they're 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 really really intelligent and give me very honest feedback. And so um I was curious with this onion article how people in the animal rights movement would react because it could be seen as being perhaps trivializing to the issue of animal slaughter. I don't think it was, but I was curious to see if others did, and I haven't checked in on the comments yet. But that's one thing that I'll that I'll look for. So it's a good example of how um, active blogging can really be a give and take with your audience. That at least makes me uh, a lot wiser. Mm. And this is such an important issue. I understand that the whole humane meat thing, which is such an oxymoron, 
that that kind of food is not really available for most people anyway, even if it is humane. And I totally agree with you that it isn't. I actually saw you on a panel here in New York City, and you were the only person on the panel who was not a farmer. And these people were all small farmers trying to farm in in what our society is now saying is the best way. And I would say, I guess if you're going to raise animals, they are doing it, certainly a better way from uh, factory farming. But I will never forget that one of the farmers who raises pigs said, oh, we can't afford our own pork tenderloin. And it's like she just expressed why this is just silly. Well, it's, it's, I, it is silly, but it's worse, and, and, and here's why. I mean, you're right that you're, these farmers raising these kind of boutique breeds and doing so um, certainly in a, in a better way um, than a factory farm, you're absolutely right to highlight that they're really only reaching a niche market and a niche market of wealthy, um, wealthy consumers. But here's here's what I think about that. While the market that they reach is small, their bullhorn is really big, and the message that they're sending is almost exceeding the market that can afford their products. And the message that they're sending is that animal agriculture is okay so long as we do it in a way that is not industrial, as long as we do it in a way that's on a small scale, that's organic or local or whatever kind of feel-good name you want to attach to it. Now, my problem with that is if I really believe that if our ultimate concern is getting rid of factory farming and then and then perhaps taking it a step further and um, reducing our reliance on animal agriculture altogether, I mean, if that is our concern... Um, as long as it's culturally acceptable to eat animals, and 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 this is exactly what the small boutique, sustainable, local, organic, good guy farmers are saying. They're saying it's okay to continue to eat animals. You just have to pay a little more for it and get it from the right farm. But as long as we're saying that, you know, bottom line, it's okay to eat animals, then factory farms are always going to be the main producer. They're always going to win that game because for reasons that you've already pointed out, these small farmers are never going to be able to actually take substantial market share away from the factory farms. It's economically impossible for that to happen. So I simply do not see any real potential for moving ahead um, and, and making real progress towards reducing our reliance on animals if all we're going to do is support these smaller farms, these supposedly more humane farms. In fact, all I see happening is a group, a very small group of people having an opportunity to kind of salve their guilt while factory farms continue to do what factory farms do so well, and that's produce massive amounts of animal products at a very cheap cost because of economies of scale. So to me, the issue really isn't where you get your animals from. It's, it's more cultural. It's like, hey, how do we feel about eating animals culturally? And I think that the battle is really not to get people to eat from the right kind of farms, but to get people not to eat animals at all and to see what, what the problems ethically in particular are with the choice to, um, to eat animals. So kind of a kind of a long answer but it's a really uh, it's an issue i feel very strongly about and you know i just think as those who are promoting these smaller farms as a viable alternative are missing this this larger uh, cultural phenomena that as long as we say it's okay the factory farms are always going to provide a cheaper uh, cheaper alternative I completely agree with you. And when this movement began, even in the modern era, when the Vegan Society in England was founded in the 1940s, this was before factory farming. But they still saw the inhumanity of Mm. getting rid of the baby chicks, uh, the boy chicks, of of the the Mm. veal units. And certainly these vegetarians that we quote and look up to, Voltaire and Shelley and Da Vinci and Pythagoras, Mm. there was not factory farming then. There was just killing. And they saw that that was wrong. And the truth is, animals that are raised for food, they always get the short end of the stick. 
I mean, anytime you're doing anything for economic gain, certainly you don't have to do it in some sadistic fashion, as I know some factory farms, I think you could use that word and not be off. But it's the animals don't come first in, in any situation like that. Well, no, and that's, again, where it's really important for consumers to be, you know, quite critical of a lot of the rhetoric coming out of these smaller farms, which really um, do claim to treat their animals so well. And I'm not saying they don't treat them well better than a factory farmer does. They they certainly do. But I think we have to really question um, the value that animals have when they're owned and, and when they're fattened to be killed. I mean, ultimately, the bottom line, the end goal of a small farm and a large farm and a, is the same, and that's to raise an animal and kill it and commodify it and eat it. And that's a pretty damning fundamental commonality. So um, the, and it's one that's really, I think, um, not recognized because a lot of these smaller farms do such a good job of marketing themselves as the um, the the noble humane alternative to to factory farming. Mm. Now we've just been talking about how we vegans are so wonderful, but you also blogged recently about a flaw that we tend to have. So in the minute and a half that we have left in this segment, what is a vegan gotcha? <laughs> well, within the vegan uh, culture, um, which I do write a lot about, there's a type of person who's always on the lookout for somebody who is, you know, making a mistake, not living up to the perfect vegan ideal. And this could be anything from a a leather belt to drinking the wrong kind of beer, because a lot of beer happens to be filtered through a a kind of isinglass, which is, I guess, a bone uh, derivative, Um, leather car seats. I mean, we're so uh, infused in a uh, world, material world based on animal products, that it's very, very difficult to extricate yourself from reliance on animals. And so the vegan gotcha is the person who goes around looking for the self-proclaimed vegan who is making a mistake. And I find that kind of person to be, well, not only annoying, but counterproductive, because I think it could alienate a lot of potential vegans who wants to step into a world where they're going to constantly be looked at for making a mistake. Not, not many people. Absolutely. I think it's so important to just be human. Bruce Friedrich has a beautiful quotation that I used in my book, Main Street Vegan, where he said, this is not about personal purity. This is about humane choices. Mm-hmm. And within that, the adventures are endless. So we will be back right after this break with more with James McWilliams. Check out his website, james-mcwilliams.com, and uh, stay with us. There's more Main Street Vegan with me. I'm Victoria Moran, coming up right after these messages. You have a coach in your corner, a life coach that is. Like a coach in sports, a life coach can help you set clear goals and develop the confidence and tools you need to achieve them. Join certified life coach Carla McClellan Tuesdays at 3 p.m. for Vibrant Living on Unity Online Radio. Each week, Coach Carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to help make your life more focused, more meaningful, and more vibrant. Do you have a specific issue or topic you'd like to discuss with Coach Carla? Call in toll-free Tuesdays at 3 p.m. during Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla. Did you know that you are supported in your quest to create a more fulfilling life? In fact, spiritual psychology suggests that the key to purposeful living lies in your ability to embrace all of who you are and everything life has brought your way. Jesse Harriet wants to talk with you about how to do just that, being yourself and becoming yourself. That's what living on purpose is all about. 
Call in with your questions and comments for Jesse live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Central on Living on Purpose, where we blend psychology and ancient wisdom. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you want to get in touch with me, you can come to my website, MainStreetVegan.net. You can write to me at Victoria at MainStreetVegan.net, or you can follow me on Twitter, the one thing online that I actually like. And there I am, Victoria underscore Moran. And our wonderful guest today, James McWilliams. You can go to his site, James-McWilliams.com. Now, you have done some blogging lately about something going on at Green Mountain College. What's that about? Green Mountain College is a small college in Vermont, less than a 1,000 students, and they have a working farm. And this is becoming increasingly popular at a lot of smaller colleges. Um, on this working farm, they have, or they had two oxen. Um, and for about 10 years, these oxen pulled a plow. One of the things that the farm is trying to achieve is uh, freedom from fossil fuels. And so they, um, they have these oxen yank a plow around the farm. It's a 22-acre farm. And last October, the college decided that um, because one of the oxen uh, hurt his ankle, the college decided that it was time to retire the oxen. The other oxen, interestingly, wouldn't work without his friend near him. Bill and Lou were their names. And uh, Lou hurt his ankle. Bill wouldn't work without Lou next to him. And so the school decided that Bill and Lou were going to be retired. Well, what this meant was they were going to be slaughtered and served as hamburger in the dining hall at Green Mountain College. These these two oxen that had been very much loved by students uh, for for ten years. Well, okay. I mean, this is something that uh, happens quite a bit. Animals are raised; they serve their purpose. They are killed. They are eaten. Um, what really brought this issue to national attention was the fact that a farm sanctuary stepped in and said, no, 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 you don't have to serve the oxen to the students as hamburgers. What you can do is um, give them to us. We'll take them for free. We'll pick them up. It'll cost you no money whatsoever. And we'll let the oxen live out the rest of their lives with medical care and access to pastures and a happy life at our farm sanctuary. Now, everyone just thought that's going to be the end of it. Great. They'll turn the oxen over. The college will turn the oxen over, and the uh, that will be the end of the story. But the college dug in, it, dug in its heels and said, no, we're going to kill these oxen and eat them. And then I started to blog about it, and it started to kind of get some media attention. The Boston Globe did some stories on this, animal rights activists really began to get involved in Green Mountain College, a college with less than a thousand students, got four million emails in opposition to this decision. And it made international news. Uh, The end result was they quote-unquote euthanized Lou, the animal, the oxen with the hurt ankle. Um, The circumstances of that quote-unquote euthanization are extremely shady and bill is still alive so in that respect it was somewhat of a victory for animal rights activists but what really interests me about the entire green mountain college affair was how the college used environmental rhetoric to obscure very important ethical questions and um, I blogged so much about this that I decided I actually had material for a short book and I just finished an ebook that hopefully will be released in the near future about this topic and what I really did in this ebook was I explored number one the way that the college used these the, the, the rhetoric of sustainable agriculture to obscure the ethical 
implications of what they were doing. Um, that very much interested me. And then the next thing that I did was I looked at the justifications that Green Mountain College offered for killing the animals, and then I compared that with the arguments that philosophers, that animal rights activists, that bloggers were putting together against what they were doing. And it's just so clearly obvious that the opponents of killing these animals had such better arguments, had uh, had put much more thought into addressing uh, the ethical implications of what was happening, that my hope is that somebody who's maybe unsure about what to think about uh, Green Mountain College's decision will read my ebook and say, whoa, I see, I see. One side really is being evasive and duplicitous and cowardly, whereas the other side is just laying out their reasons for opposing this animal slaughter, and the reasons are compelling, and the reasons are um, difficult to refute. And I, I, my hope is that the you know that in and of itself will get some people to maybe think a little bit um, more, a little bit more uh, reflectively about their own choices to to eat animals. So. Um, yeah, it was a big deal, and it's it's kind of fizzling out now. But um, it's uh, it it really for a while was um, was was making international news. And what will the ebook be called? It's tentatively titled "The Politics of the Pasture." Ah, ah, and we don't know yet where Bill will end up. Well, we're um, certainly keeping an eye on that. I heard I got an update two days ago that. Um, he was out in the pasture, alive, looked healthy. Somebody took a photograph of him and sent it to me. So we hope Bill will just uh, remain uh, on the campus. It, the, the, the campus will never my, – my feeling is that the farm will never turn Bill over to a farm sanctuary because the, the invective that went back and forth between the college and this particular sanctuary was so vicious that – it's almost a face-saving thing, you know. I, mm-hmm. I think the college feels like if they turned the cattle over to the to the sanctuary, that it would be um, kind of giving in, and yes. um, they they don't want to do that. The other really interesting thing is that uh, the the animal rights lawyer Stephen Wise got involved and put together this package, this really generous package. Um, mainly of donors who were wanted to buy these oxen. And I think the package, and it was like $75,000 that, you know, the um, that donors were offering the school to take the oxen and put them in a sanctuary. And, and the school still dug in its heels and wouldn't accept that offer. So mm. it's really kind of a, a, a remarkable case. And, and quite frankly, um, a, 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 an example of, of just horrific behavior on an in, on the part of an institution of higher education. I think I think people who read this book will be completely stunned at at what they see. Um I mean I found a I actually got to have a have an email that I put in the book written by the president of the university um emailing the employer of somebody who wrote an angry letter to the university saying, "Do you do you want your employee sending out this kind of uh, this kind of email, um, and I find that to be unbelievable uh, coming from a college president. And you know, this is a place that was talking about everyone having a voice and all all opinions needing to be heard. But um, when it came time to confront the animal activists, they did so with um, really quite fascist techniques. And uh, it's really it's a really disappointing book in a lot of ways. And yet. I can hardly wait to read it. So thank you. Now, speaking of books and speaking of your books in particular, I do want to go back to something that you said in Just Food that was so stunning. I got out my yellow marker. You say the quickest way to diminish wasteful fertilizer applications significantly would be to stop producing grain to feed livestock. If one could wave a magic wand and radically reduce meat consumption, all discussions of fertilizer abuse would come to an abrupt halt. I think most people would be shocked and stunned to hear that. Well, the reason why, yeah, and and I think, you know, what's interesting about our our debate 
in discussions about fertilizer today is is it's you know uh, between using organic versus using um, synthetic fertilizer and and the kind of general perception is that organic uh, fertilizer is um, good for the environment and um, uh, synthetic fertilizer is not. The, what's missed when we think in those dichotomized terms is that the vast majority, um, I want to say 75% of the synthetic fertilizer that's um, applied to soil in the United States, let's just talk about that because I have the figures in my head when we talk about the United States, the vast majority of the fertilizer that's applied in the United States is applied to grow corn and soy, and of course the vast majority of corn and soy is grown to feed to animals. So if you removed uh, that 75% of fertilizer application, you didn't grow corn and soy with it, um, we really wouldn't be talking about runoff. We wouldn't be talking about soil acidification. If we were using our agricultural land to grow a diversity of plant-based crops for people to eat. What a concept, right? Growing food mm. directly for people to eat. Radical. Um, yeah. If we did that, we wouldn't have a fertilizer problem because we wouldn't use, be using anywhere near the volume of fertilizer that we're using um, today. Uh, so, you know, it's. Um, I guess that's not rocket science. I mean, it seems fairly straightforward, but the flip side of this, people who, who want to transition to using animal, animal manure and compost as, um, as a substitute fertilizer um, fail to realize that there's a number of problems with uh, composted manure. And uh, I recently actually just wrote about this for um, uh, conservation, conservation Magazine, and um, it's going to come out in March. Um, but I spoke to a scientist who who reminded me reminded me I actually didn't know it that the rates of nitrogen and phosphorus runoff uh, from composted manure is the exact same as it is for synthetic fertilizer. So you know my my thought process in just food was hey maybe we shouldn't be thinking in terms of organic versus conventional fertilizer maybe we sh- we should be thinking of how can we. Um, reorganize our agricultural system of production to use radically less fertilizer and the again the 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 quickest and most substantial way that we could reduce fertilizer application is to stop growing food to feed the animals so i just asked you about fertilizer but i could have asked about energy or water use or soil erosion or any number mm-hmm. of other environmental problems that we have known for 30 years would be much improved if people were eating a plant-based diet. Why don't more environmentalists get this? Right. Well, that's a great question. I Again, going back to something we talked about earlier in the show, um, one of the, in my opinion, one of the more insidious effects of the of the sustainable food movement, of, of the people who are telling us that it's okay to eat animals so long as we do so from the right kind of farms, the, the smaller farms, the pasture-based farms, um, they are in many ways perpetuating a fiction that if we just simply reorganized agriculture so that animals were raised on pasture and farms were smaller, that these environmental problems would go away. And they won't. Um, the environmental problems of animal agriculture are going to be there whether we're raising them in confined, consolidated fashion in industrial systems or whether we decentralize it and raise them on small farms. Animal agriculture is just inefficient. It uses more energy. It uses more water, it creates more greenhouse gas emissions, no matter what the form. And that, but, but, but because people don't realize that there's many environmentalists say, I continue, I'm going to continue to eat animals, I'm just going to get them pasture raised, or I'm going to eat grass fed beef, or I'm going to make sure I get all of my eggs from the local farm down the road. And there's this sense that that is absolving the environmental costs, but it's not. 
and the the evidence on this is really quite clear, and it's stunning. Um, there was a study recently came out uh, that showed again. And this is a wave, wave the magic wand moment. You could say you could wave the magic wand and um, create a agri- global agricultural system that did not have animals in it. Um, greenhouse gas emissions would drop 88%. I mean, if for food production, would drop 88%. That's a stunning figure. And you would think that anyone who is interested in fighting global warming any organization that was interested in fighting global warming would make veganism or the promotion of plant-based agriculture, again, plants for people to eat, their number one priority, or at least make it a really high priority. Recently, but they don't, and here's a concrete example. I recently contacted 350.org, which is an organization dedicated to bringing greenhouse gas levels down to 350 parts per million per year. Um, now, I said to them, I gave them the facts and figures, and I said, why don't you have at least a division within 350.org that addresses veganism? Because here's the great benefits that could come from a transition to a plant-based diet. And the response was, you know, we don't think it's realistic. It's just not what we're into. Now, who knows why that's the case? I think there are many, many reasons um, but what I find appalling is that this is an organization that was spending a great deal of time opposing the construction of a natural gas pipeline. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear here that I'm not a big supporter of fracking, but the fact of the matter is as we use more natural gas rather than coal, greenhouse gas, emission, greenhouse gas emissions go down. In fact, the United States right now is about to fall within the Kyoto Protocols, which we never signed. And the reason why we're about to do that is because we're using more natural gas. So I just find it particularly ironic that an organization dedicated to lowering greenhouse gas emissions won't at least give some credence to veganism and lend some support to that option. Um, so, yeah, it's frustrating. I think the reasons are complicated. I think these al- these alternatives that are promoted as being viable is a part of the problem. And I also think there's this general perception that, you know what, it's just unrealistic. People love their their meat. It's so interesting that I, I was speaking in Dallas last week at a lovely church. The people were just terrific. And usually when I speak at Unity Churches, I do a workshop called the Fillmore Diner because the founders of Unity, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, were very vocally vegetarian. And the lovely woman there in Dallas said, oh, can you do a different workshop because this is Texas and we love our meat. But what actually happened, virtually everybody that came to the workshop wanted to know about how to go vegan. So I think there's this perception that it's so hard and people can't possibly do it, but the actual people are very interested. Yes, I, I think so. And I think, you know, it to, to give you a compliment, it probably has a lot to do with the messenger. And I think this is really important. Again, something I write a lot about is, you know, as we put these ideas out there, we have to be tactful. We have to be aware that people are coming at this issue from very different places. And, Indeed, Texas is an incredibly uh, meat-based culture. And, you know, in your introduction, you, you called uh, Austin a veg heaven, and it is in so many ways. There are so many great vegetarian and vegan options in Austin. But it's also just a barbecue haven as well. And people are really quite religious about this. And so, yeah, I mean, there are, there are certainly, there is certainly so much room for um, making inroads into people's um, thought process uh, when it comes to food. But there are deeply entrenched cultural habits that are always going to be, I think, difficult to break. A quick story, I gave a talk once in South Texas where I promoted the importance of veganism. And I could see this guy looked like a rancher kind of squirming in the crowd as I was giving this talk. And then when I finished, he raised his hand and said, I want to tell you that you really made an impact on me. Um, I um, am now going to go out and eat twice as much meat as I once did. (laughs) In other words, saying that that's what I think of your talk. (laughs) So you just just never know, um, 
you know, how people are going to react. But it shouldn't stop us from going into cultures that are deeply identified with eating meat and and delivering our message um, with as much tact and respect and but directness as possible. Yes. It's hard to do, but um, you know, I, I think it I think it has to be done. Well, you quote another former rancher in your book, and that's Howard Lyman, who said to be an environmentalist who happens to eat meat is like being a philanthropist who doesn't happen to give to charity. Thank you so very much, James McWilliams. The website is james-mcwilliams.com. The book is Just Food. Follow this man. Read his blog. He is amazing. And I hope we get to talk again. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. Thank you. Okay. Be well. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Tune in same time next week when Jenny Messina, MSRD, wonderful plant-based dietitian, will be our guest. Get all your questions about being healthy, and she can answer them for you. Take good care. I'm Victoria Moran, and you have been listening to Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Music Speaks Louder Than Words is an inspiring, informative, and fun hour of uplifting, heartfelt music and commentary that delivers a powerful message of love, joy, and oneness. It will keep you smiling and singing along. Your hosts, Reverends Dale Worley and Christy Snow, are alive with the Spirit of God and singing their love to you. Each Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Central Time with Music Speaks Louder Than Words. Music, it's the only thing that the whole world listens to. Music speaks louder than words when you sing. Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. You are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift, heal, and comfort them. As you send this radiance on, you are filled with a new sense of God's power, and you release this power to the whole world to uplift, guide, and bless all people. A day's tasks await you, but God is with you, and with God's help, all shall be done perfectly. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. There is peace. There is quiet. Reverend Paulette's mantra is, It's all a prayer. Tune in every Tuesday as Unity Minister Paulette Pipe leads you in meditation and prayer on touching the stillness. Make no mistake, this is not nap time. With an energy that will captivate you, touching the stillness will guide you in deep meditation, leaving you enlivened. Hear astounding meditations and learn more about different forms of meditation. Enrich your prayer life as Reverend Paulette, Senior Minister of Touching the Stillness Ministries, affirmatively prays with power and authority by taking live prayer requests from callers like you. 
Whether you have a prayer request for yourself or for a loved one or are ready for a deepened meditation experience, make sure you tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Central Time, where we'll be joining in consciousness with the unceasing prayer activity of the Silent Unity 24-7 Prayer Ministry at Unity Village. That's Touching the Stillness with Rev. Paulette Pipe every Tuesday right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Letting go in the stillness. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 